now listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. On today's program, once again, we're going to take a look at very powerful current trends taking place. And any one of these trends on a singular basis would have the power to permanently collapse or disrupt a society or a nation and, of course, eventually the world. We're in a place where, you know, it's no longer time to play games and it's no longer acceptable to perceive the world that you live in and say glib and incredibly stupid things like, oh, it's always been like this. Nothing's different today than it was, you know, hundreds of years ago and thousands of years ago. Oh, you know, they've always had extremes in weather and hot weather and global warming, etc. There's always been crime and rape and murder and sexual immorality. There's always been thieves and stealing and uh, the occult, etc., etc. And so the idea is you discount the very unique, different time zone or, or time sphere that we're living in. You diminish what your perception is telling you. You minimize it. You look at what is essentially an an atrocity dressed up. It's an atrocity in disguise. But instead of letting it walk around obscenely in its nakedness, you attempt to cover it up and say, things have always been this way. Well, yeah, things have always been this way to varying degrees in different cultures and different nations for different periods of time. So, for example, Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany and communist Russia. These two nations alone reflect um, times that were totally unique and different than really anything that had come before. And the only way you would know that is you would have to read history, understand history. So, for example, the reason I wrote my book, The Greatest Battle for the Hearts and Minds of Mankind in the History of the World, is because I, I wanted to write a book that was fast-moving, entertaining, but, but intellectually and spiritually powerful, but also something that would grab the mind of the reader so that even non-readers would stay with the book. And then, of course, make the book, the warning, the explanations, make them applicable to everyday reality, make them like alarms going off in today's world. So that was the goal and purpose of all the books that I write. I'm just happening to think of The Greatest Battle. Because as I studied that, and this is material that I've been studying my whole life, but I was revisiting it. And I learned something, and I I discussed this with my wife. You know, she's not not always, like, thrilled to (laughs) have these discussions morning, noon, and night, but, but, but I told her, I, I, I don't remember what I said, but it was something to the effect that when it comes to these things, you know, like I'm driven. There's something that drives me that is beyond the ordinary. And I think what it is, I think what it is, is God downloaded in my DNA, just like he downloaded in your DNA, a mission, a purpose, a calling, certain gifts and talents, etc., etc., So the Bible tells us that God knew us before the foundation of the world called us to be here for such a time as this. So this means that God downloaded into you before you were conceived by your mother and father. 
God, this, by the way, can only be understood in the context of the reality that we live in a multidimensional universe, like a minimum of like somewhere between 11 and 13 or 11 and 14 different dimensions. Whereas when you went back in time, the predominant viewpoint, and it wasn't all that long ago, the predominant viewpoint was that reality is only composed of the dimensions that we can see, touch, uh, feel, etc. Reality is composed of those dimensions and, and that set of realities which can be perceived by your physical senses. And science emphatically declared, like the false prophet and the false religion it is, uh, science emphatically declared that the only thing that was real, the only thing that was true, were those things that can be quantitatively measured, seen, visually, heard, auditory, touching, tasting. Your, in other words, whatever data your physical senses give you, then that's the only reality that there is. Anything else outside of that reality is to be designated as, you know, magic uh, or something kind of weird. Because science, up until recently, did not consider anything to be real unless you could perceive it with your physical senses. So what happened is what always happens with science. You look at the history of science, and you watch it as it, it rolls over and over again for, let's say, 2,000 uh, years. So what we see is our reality constantly changing. And so what happens with science, because science is not absolute, it's relative, the scientists have to, on a regular base, basis, sneak their way out of whatever their theory is, their scientific theory or their hypothesis or whatever it is. Scientists have to get out of town quick and they do this through a number of ways, in, in the hopes that people will forget what they pronounce to be final reality. And so that's the story of science. So, so they'll come up with a theory, and maybe they'll believe, believe the theory for a year, or maybe it'll be 100 years, I don't know. But what will happen is the scientists will be confronted with so much factual evidence, like with the theory of evolution, they, they have uncovered 80 million uh, archaeological relics, you know, bone fragments and stuff like that buried under the earth. 80 million uh, evidences that collectively, all 80 million of these scientific archaeological discoveries, all 80 million of them affirm and promote the idea that evolutionary theory as proposed by Charles Darwin is a mathematical, statistical, and scientific impossibility. And furthermore, there is absolutely no scientific evidence whatsoever to even remotely conclusively prove that man ever, that mankind ever evolved through what um, Charles Darwin called random chance or evolution, and that it's scientifically impossible any way you look at it it's scientifically impossible for mankind to have come into being the way he and she did just through random time passing. A pebble doesn't become, you know, a molecule. A molecule doesn't become a whatever. You know, the DNA of a snail is radically different than the DNA of man. And so 
you discover that there is order to the universe. There is complexity to the universe, but there is order to the universe. The universe, it's obvious when you study nature, which is God's primary living evidence of who he is and what he can create. And when you look at mankind, it is obvious that both mankind and the universe and the world that we live in is emphatically, without question, the product of a specific blueprint, a specific highly advanced design, which proves, without any shadow of the doubt, that both men and women have been designed by a super-intelligent being known as the Supreme Being, and that the animals and the birds and the horses and all of that stuff and the complexity of the heavens and gravitational poles and uh, um, multiple dimensions, the complexity of the way your heart beats in perfect synchronization, your arteries, your bloodstream, your brain, your DNA, your genetic code, breathing, the tides going in, the tides going out, the, the, the exact requirement of oxygen you need as a human being, the requirement of hydrogen, and then other factual evidences that are irrefutable that mankind did not just spontaneously come into this world. So what we have is the fact, and this was only discovered in the last uh, 50 years or so, so what they have discovered is, is that mankind is uniquely and differently created than any other species of animal, and even things that we in our naivete as human beings, I can't tell you all the times, and you probably had to endure this garbage also, I can't tell you all the times I had to, under, under the, the orders of, you're going on a, a school field trip, so, you know, we, the students at young ages, we all had to take a bus down to whatever city I lived in at the time. We had to go down and visit the public zoo. And in big cities, the public zoos are really expensive and oh, they're, they're like incredible. They, they use technology. You know, you've been there. So these zoos are a phenomenal trip. But, you know, time passed by and then we had our three children. And as our three children got older, I can't remember the exact age they were, but let's say hypothetically that my kids were all roughly around nine or ten years old, okay? So as a dad, I deliberately, because I'm head of Paul McGuire Ministries in Paradise Mountain Church, I have the blessing and the opportunity to guide and direct my schedule, etc. Now, you may say, well, that's unfair. No, it's not unfair, because Paul McGuire, from the time he was a little boy on, I remember going to my mother, Mom, can I have some money? The answer was no. <laughs> what do you mean I can't have money? She said, if, in, in this world and in this household, if you want money, Paul, and you're going to have to get a job and earn it. My answer was, well, Mom, I don't have a job. Then go out and get one. There are plenty of jobs in the neighborhood. You just got to knock on some doors, and she gave me some ideas, and I went job hunting because I realized my parents were divorced at this time. So I realized my mother is a single mother. I mean, when she said that, I could she tell she meant it. She was not going to give me a penny because I could sense that there was a dual communication here. One, she wanted to teach me, even though she was an atheist, a socialist, a humanist, et cetera, et cetera, she uh, 
believed in certain principles of uh, human nature that I think, even though she had a, a high-level university education, she, uh, she, her, her thinking, her point of view, she rejected Christianity at a young age, but she still had embedded in her point of view and her mind and soul, she had embedded all kinds of Christian values, capitalist work ethic values, you know, like you don't work, you don't, you don't eat. She still had all those bedrock American values in her, which she passed on to me, and that was a good thing. That was a good thing. And it was a good thing once upon a time in America when we, the people, we were all, or the majority of us in America, you know, 50 years ago or so, we had instilled in all of us this, whether we were, whether we're Christians or not, we had Christian values instilled in us. We had a work ethic uh, embedded in us. You know, if you work hard, you get paid. Uh, you don't. My father would say, "There's no such thing as a free lunch," which of course means, you know, no, nobody's going to buy. If you're stupid enough to believe, can you tell that I love saying the word stupid like that? If you listen carefully, play it back. That stupid. I can't, I can't do it now, but uh, there's there's kind of a, a fleshly satisfaction that I have. And rolling that word out, stupid, which it's got, it's got like a swirling curve and it's like like a surf surfing wave. You say, well, wait, was this guy crazy? Yes, I am. That's the answer that I was concealing from you earlier when somebody was asking me that. Like, how could I be so dedicated to the pursuit of certain uh, fields of study? No, I'm being satirical about myself. I wouldn't say that about myself, and you would should never say it about yourself. But the point is. All of us were the recipients of these values, and here's the important thing to know, and the media will, will lie about it, the educational system will lie about it, but the reason the entire American dream was even possible, the reason America had the greatest economy in the world, the reason America was never defeated at one time in any military conflict, and, and again, the reason America had the highest standard of living among the middle class and the lower class anywhere in the world, and by the way, this American dream was flourishing when I was a boy, which, relatively speaking, was not all that long ago. When I was a boy, all, not all that long ago, I distinctly remember, like many of you do, and many of you may not remember it, but you've seen TV shows and you've seen pictures of it and you've heard your parents talk about it, that once upon a time in America, which was not that long ago, there was a vibrant, viable American dream. There was, I'm going to just lay it out flat out to you, and this, this explains my passion. <clears throat> there was an American dream that was alive and well, and we all know the American dream was, yes, somewhat idealistic, but idealistic or not, it was doable. The American dream was in all of our hearts to one degree or another, and the American dream was this collective vision that we as Americans, and especially American Christians, we truly believed that if you worked hard in America, you were honest, you paid your taxes, you worshiped God, you did what was right, that God would prosper you, and one day you could own your own home, <clears throat> you could um, have a halfway decent life, maybe take a vacation once a year, um, and you had the opportunity to create your own business, the, you had the opportunity, most people had the opportunity to increase their income if they wanted to by working harder. Once upon a time in America, this was like, it was known throughout the world as the American dream. 
and people from every nation on planet Earth re relatively recently. They, they salivated at the idea of, of coming to America legally or illegally because they wanted to escape the mental and physical slavery of the, the horror show nations that they came from, like communist China. <clears throat> because here in America, not only did we have economic opportunity, we had freedom of religion, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of speech, and, and freedom of assembly. We had so many freedoms. <clears throat> compared to the rest of the world. And it was incredible. Now, the point I want to make is that wasn't all that long ago. So, <clears throat> I was in the counterculture in the 1960s. When I was in third grade, I don't remember what year it was in third grade, <clears throat> but that was uh, <clears throat> a pivotal period. And so, when I was in third grade, when I was in high school, and even when I was entering the University of Missouri, where I major, majored in altered states of consciousness and filmmaking, <clears throat> the point is that, yeah, there were a lot of problems in America. Racism, the Vietnam War, economic disparity. Yes, we had problems. No, no question about it. We're not going to whitewash it and say they weren't there. They were there. But percentage-wise, the relationship to our problems, to the percentage or to the amount of opportunities, blessings, prosperity, and open doors for, yes, everyone, everyone, despite what the media says, <clears throat> you, you may have had an easier go at it if you were white. I'm not denying that. But unlike all the other nations, <clears throat> if you weren't white, if you weren't Christian, Whatever you were, you had the opportunity to get upon aboard the train of opportunity and hope and achievement and everything else. <clears throat> Maybe you, you wouldn't have had the, the same level of success if you were a, a member of the white race. I'm not saying that, that the racism wasn't a problem. But I'm telling you, when the day was done, nothing. America, you can't even compare the blessing, the success and the individual happiness available to the average American person of whatever race. Because it, it, it is mind-blowing. <clears throat> now, time goes by. Now, we had the riots and all that stuff, and we had economic ups and downs. So, so But time goes by, and I've tracked this, and that's why I wrote my books in a sequential order. I recognize when I started writing books, was that basically people don't read books anymore in a big way. So why would I write books? Because people don't read boring books, but people will and do devour books of all age groups if it's written in an entertaining, fast-moving, you can communicate the, 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 the truths with a one-two punch, you can grip them, and, and when they're reading your book, you're taking them on a ride and you're blowing their mind with all kinds of knowledge that just turns them on in so many ways. So it's not, it's not <clears throat> you know, boredom. It's, it's, it's uh, a rocket ride. So that's why I write books the way I do. Because I write books for the people who hate reading books and for the people who hate religion. They're, they're the two of the primary types of people I'm going after. So anyway, uh, what happened was that you look at the, 
what you'll see, and, and, and you can't just say it was the secular society's fault. You can't just say it was because of the sin of America and then go on and list all the sins and the failures of the non-Christians, of the atheists, of the people in non-Christian religions. It doesn't work, it work that way. The, the demise of America, the going down the wrong, wrong road, was, was uh, a combination of the rejection of God's word through belief systems and through your behavior. When American individuals, Christian and non-Christian, began to reject the reality of God, began to question and reject his commandments, began to think that modern men and women really began to think that they were smarter than Christians and smarter than Jews and smarter than God. When we began all that nonsense, and, and it was shortly after, okay, so what happened? I'm going to tell you something that, you know, there are numerous kinds of alternative media. There's the alternative media, which is conservative, and I thank God for that, and, and will be truthful through, through their adherence to conservatism. They're, they're truthful to analyzing the facts, etc., and that's a good thing. Uh, there, are, there are other media, which are like Eastern Mystical and New Age, but they, in other respects, they have good things to offer. <clears throat> but when the American people began to reject the Word of God, and there's myriad ways of doing that, that is the exact point in time. You could draw a graph. I could draw you a graph very easily. And on this graph, it would be, let's say, we would start in the year 1945. And we have it go up to the current date and then beyond. <clears throat> and on this map, you would see pivotal national and global events. So, in an underground sense, for 70 or 50 years before we began to reject Christianity publicly, privately, the citizens of America were doubting, questioning, and in the process of rejecting Christianity and Christian values. It's just that they didn't go public with what they were really thinking. But there was definitely a storm coming. Now, at, I don't want to be like overly mystical about this because I think it would be somewhat dishonest, but I would say that around, it's a good, it's a good target to start with. Around the time when prayer was outlawed in the, the public school system, at around that time, um, that was a turning point for America, where America decided to go down the road of atheism, humanism, scientism, and America decided to reject God's word, to reject the biblical God, and to reject biblical absolutes. That all happened around the time that prayer was outlawed in the schools. And I remember the setup speech that President John F. Kennedy gave at a Republican convention in Texas, and it was back then it was in black and white. And what he is doing, you know, I'm, you know, I've had many different careers, like many of you have had, and I've been in sales and marketing from many different aspects. I have sold, I've directed and created marketing campaigns, and have been involved with corporations and businesses. Everything from that to to, to, to debating. Uh, the world's and nation's leading economists, I would debate them in one-on-one -on -one debates on the biggest shows on the Fox News Network on a regular basis for over a decade. So 
I have a better than average concept of business and economics, et cetera. So the bottom line is, at the, at the exact same time that America is rejecting God and rejecting his word, that it, and, and, and outlaw, and then, then America begins to attack God or, or, or allow God to be attacked, like when prayer was ripped out of the schools. And John F. Kennedy gives what I call a sucker punch speech to, to a large gathering of uh, the National Religious Broadcasting Convention back then. We're talking about however many years ago that was. It was. That was many decades ago. So John F. Kennedy is giving a speech to the National Religious Broadcasting Convention, um, and, and there was a sizable amount of people that were very concerned about him because they were very uncomfortable with the fact that he was a Catholic. And as far as I know, no Catholic had won the presidency up until John F. Kennedy. Anyway, the purpose of this is not to make an anti-Catholic statement, because I believe that this this choice to go down the road of disaster would have been made with equal enthusiasm by a Democrat, a Republican, a Catholic, a Baptist, a Protestant, or whoever, because that's where the the globalist elite were already beginning to to seriously operate in our nation. So the bottom line is, uh, Kennedy, I'm paraphrasing what he said, he essentially said, you know, how sorry he was that this happened. He disavowed his own personal connection to it. And then he uh, uh, openly said that, uh, you know, the good thing is that even though they they made it illegal to pray in schools or or recite the Ten Commandments. Kennedy said, "The good thing is we can still recite the Ten Commandments in our in homes. We still have the religious freedom to pray in our homes. The religious freedom to um, uh, read and worship God's word." Okay, so that sounds really spiritual, right? That is the sucker punch. That is the, metho- the methodology and the psychology, the hypnosis and the persuasive techniques that are employed when you want to move somebody or somebody's from point A to point B, when otherwise they would normally be resistant to the change. So what they were doing over national television in this broadcast that, I don't know, 30 million people were watching live. They are using the president, who is perceived, even though he's Catholic, he's perceived as a, a, a religious man. And uh, Kennedy, who was a master communicator, just was, he was a master communicator, he used his gifting to, to move Christians and Catholics and, and people who, you know, claim to adhere to the Bible, he moved them in the direction of of actually being okay with outlawing prayer in schools and and reading the Bible in schools. He he moved them, he manipulated them psychologically to 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 he moved them internally from being that what they should have been was outraged and angry, and they would they should have had righteous anger and, and demanded from the politicians and the president that they immediately stop this total attack on our constitutional rights, such as freedom of religion. Because in one fell swoop, Kennedy was delivering the announcement, unless you were drunk on on some 
heavy-duty booze. Kennedy was delivering the fatal blow with a psychological manipulation, which, which basically they should have been angry and indignant and fought back. They should have if they were trying to please God, not men. If they weren't giving into a spirit of fear and they were supposed to be the men of faith that God created them to be, if the Christian church in America had been one iota in obedience to Jesus Christ, and not only that, actually obeying the call of God, actually standing up as true men and women of God would have been compelled to, it wouldn't even be a choice. If you were right with Jesus, and most of the church in America, this is why we have our problem, is not right with Jesus. Most of the church in America, including the pastors, are wrong with Jesus. And, and, and don't get diverted. I'm not talking about all the secondary Pharisee sins that people just love to spend all their time focusing in on and, and talking about and, and condemning people for. All the Pharisee sins, like somebody smokes. Somebody has a dirty thought. Somebody doesn't vote. I mean, make no mistake about it. I am not advocating smoking. It'll kill you and it'll give you cancer. Okay? I am not advocating dirty thoughts or immorality at all. That's not what I was saying. What I was saying was, those are sins. Those are antagonistic to to the Word of God. Absolutely. But... In, in order of priority, okay? See, God is a God of wisdom. God speaks to us and gives us knowledge. Knowledge is wisdom. Wisdom is power. Very simple equation. Let's do a hypothetical scenario. You, you and I, or you and somebody else, or whatever, there's a bunch of you, you're gathered together at somebody's house, okay, to have a Bible study. You're having your Bible study. Nobody notices it, but there's a this, there's this strange burning odor. But, but people think it's a fireplace or something. So they ignore the warning signs. What it is is that somehow there was a gas leak or something outside of the house, far away from the room that the people were in, and unbeknownst to them, a, a, a fire was beginning to burn, and that fire was near some uh, uh, gasoline cans for the storage of gasoline and stuff. And and whether people knew it or not, they were literally minutes or five minutes or whatever away from the combustible material, like the gasoline, exploding, blowing up, setting fire to the house. And with the acceleration of, of the gasoline that had spilled everywhere and the, the lighted flames on it, it would have been an explosive fire, an explosive surge of flames, which would have caused the, the house and the people in it, that they would have been trapped in the house with an enormous surge of burning fire. Now, is it rude to warn people of what's happening and to, to tell them, you, we need to get out of the house now? Is it rude to say that firmly? I would say, every one of you would say no. And then you would agree with me as I raise the, if nobody's reacting, and they're ignoring you, and you know there's going to be an explosion of fire, you raise significantly the level of, of, of uh, confrontation. But they're still resisting you, and now you're trying to logically and reasonably argue with them and logically convince them that their lives are in danger. 
And you know, this is it. I mean, we're in the, you're, you're approaching the end, my friend. And so, in a last desperate plea, you lose it, okay? Because they're about ready to be burned to death. You love them. They're your friends, your children. You love them passionately. And you are beside yourself. You, you've done everything you could to get them out of there. You've tried to physically drag them, and they're, they're mocking you and calling you all kinds of names. And then you lose it. And, and in the losing it, you're, you, you make, you're screaming out one final appeal. What are you, crazy? This house is going to blow up. But they're dismissing you as a conspiracy theorist. Oh, he's just a conspiracy theorist. She's just a conspiracy theorist. And so that's the basis of which they ignore you. And so the whole house is about to blow up in flames. And finally, you lose it, okay? And in the process of losing it, because you're desperately trying to reach through their hard hearts, you end up either cursing at them by name or, or really speaking ugly of them as individuals or a group. And, and that violates egregiously any social customs. Okay? You are rude and, and everything else. But it's a an attempt, a desperate attempt. And so you, you swear at them. You blank and blank, 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 blank. Let's get the blank out of here before you know what happens. And then you might name some people, you know. And you, you, you're snapped. You've lost it. Okay, so does God view that? How does God appraise that? Well, I think most of you, those of you that are sane anyway, would totally agree that in certain cases, cases it's justifiable to lose it. God doesn't, you know, uh, applaud cursing and stuff. but. I believe that would be justifiable in the eyes of God if your motive was trying to shock them. And even if you did lose it, because your love for them was so deep, it, it, it is justified to whatever degree, because your motive, your inner motive, and what caused you to snap was an overwhelming burden of love towards each and every one of them, and, and, and your overwhelming desire to physically rescue them from burning to death. So, yeah, you violated. The, the Pharisee laws, but taken in context, you did the right thing from an eternal and a truly moral point of view. That same principle can be adapted to all kinds of situations in life. So here we are in America, and if, you, if you've looked at the history of America on TV or entertainment or parents or grandparents or if you were alive back then yourself, you can see that America has been in a, in a massive regression. America has been bleeding from the heart. America is going down. It's not pessimism. In every measurable area, America is declining and going down. Economically, retirement, medical care is getting worse and worse. There's more crime, more drug addiction, more suicide, more depression, more anxiety. I mean, just about any category, you, you analyze and study, you see that America is no longer the American dream, it's the American nightmare. And that's true. Now, if you say that, and you have documentation to back it up, then um, you're not sinning, you're not being hateful, you're not stirring up strife when you communicate this to people. You are acting like a faithful servant of God. You're trying to rescue them. You're trying to wake them up. And so at this critical time, anybody who's aware of, of the way things were in America 
knows that America, this, this stuff about America being the greatest nation on earth, this is not baloney, if you know what I mean. This is not made-up stuff. I was alive, and many of you were alive, and other people listening, you need to hear this. We were alive. We physically saw it. We experienced it. We lived through that sacred time that God gave us. We lived through that time when America was the greatest nation on earth. We were there. We experienced it. So your professor, your teacher can, can reinvent history all they want with their, their Marxist, Hitlerian babble. But the truth of the matter is, America was the greatest nation on earth. Now, that does not mean for one nanosecond that simultaneously America did not have an epidemic of major, serious problems, social injustice, racism, disparity of income, income inequality, uh, unequal access to education, uh, uh, ghettos, um, uh, wars, uh, crime, drug addiction, divorce epidemic, abortion, I mean, on and on and on. That stuff was brewing underneath the sociological surface of America. At the exact same time, people were saying America was the greatest nation on earth. But look, despite what they're telling you, one set of facts doesn't overrule the other set of facts. Just because America was the greatest nation on earth does not mean that America was perfect. And it does not mean that America was not experiencing an epidemic of problems. The point is, it is very possible, in fact, it is the norm historically, for nations and empires to experience absolutely conflicting realities in the same period of time. In other words, so it's possible to be in a five-year crime epidemic, while at the same time people are becoming more and more prosperous and jobs pay more and more money. You would think it's an oxymoron, but it is not always an oxymoron. And then we have the American dream, you know, a car, a white picket fence, a house. All of those things were true. They weren't just naive fairy tales made up by greedy capitalists. They were real. They were tangible. They were accessible. It doesn't mean that they were distributed equally. It doesn't mean that it was implemented in a completely fair manner. The point is, if you compare America to every other nation on planet Earth, America truly was the American dream. And so you you just, I'm not going to spend a whole lot lot of time on the statistics, but you just analyze the statistics. So, for example, the reality of an American middle class and the reality of a prosperous, prosperous American working class. defies any historical comparison. There has never been a nation or an empire in the history of mankind, with the exception of America, which had a very prosperous middle class, working class, opportunities, jobs, opportunities to increase wealth, um, a lifestyle that that would have been enviable uh, around the world. And when you add it all up, America has been historically, it's a matter of historical fact, the only nation in the history of mankind that has had a prosperous and super prosperous middle class and working class. All the other nations of the world essentially were hell holes one way or the other. No freedoms, no prosperity, etc., etc. Now you've got to think about that and you've got to process it. 
So just as a side note, why would anybody who is even remotely intelligent, and that's that's a big question mark, even remotely intelligent, despite all of his problems, whatever race you are, why would you throw away or chuck away or reject the very biblical principles, the very principles that allowed America to be great and prosperous, the American dream to come true, and, and American freedoms to be enjoyed? Why? Why on earth would you even remotely damage a system that is unique among all of human history and actually produces wealth for, for everybody? Why would you mess with that? The only reason somebody would mess with that is if, they, if that person or those persons, whether they're in the media or the educational system or people you know or the working man or working woman or middle class or lower class, the only possible reason you would throw away the, the, the procedures, the plans for America that, that guarantee success and guarantee prosperity and guarantee freedom, the only possible reason that you would reject those principles is that you have been overtaken by a temporary form of insanity. Some kind of virulent mental illness has like attacked your brain and you are no longer capable of rational thinking. It's like if somebody somehow secretly injected you with something that gave you instantly dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. So you don't know whether you're here, you don't know your name. I mean, you're just walking around in oblivion. Only some radical alteration to your consciousness, your brain, your cognitive abilities, and your thinking abilities only some radical transformation in your consciousness could twist your brain so bad that you would actually be foolish enough to take back into your mind, life, and society, to take back into your inner man or woman, to take back into your society the specific principles, guidelines, ideas, belief systems, habits, rules, and rituals that were guaranteed and are guaranteed to produce overwhelming success and opportunity for all that will produce untold freedoms in every area of life, like freedom of religion, that will offer prosperity and upward mobility to all, that despite its faults is the best system for solving the racism problem. It's very simple. You, you wouldn't ever take back in ideas that are so radioactively poisonous that you would destroy yourself, your family, your nation, and your world. You just wouldn't do it. And yet, I'm telling you, there's an answer to the reason why millions and millions of people are flocking back into this mass insanity. Now, everything, every time I hit a beachhead, and that's the, the point of a military invasion. So like if an army is invading a nation and an army or a navy or whatever, they first land on the beach and they're heavily armed. That beach that they're landing on before they invade a nation in military terms is called a beachhead. So why, why would anybody, why would I, why would we allow a beachhead, a militant foreign army, to invade us, to enslave us, 
And their primary mechanism of invasion and enslaving us is that they, they are highly sophisticated in scientific mind control, scientific brainwashing, programming people, indoctrinating people. And you look at communist nations and you see that they're heavy-duty serious about brainwashing their people, indoctrinating the people, controlling the minds of the people. So their people are essentially slaves without fully realizing it. That is the only potential answer to the question, why on earth would anybody take back into their lives the belief systems, the behaviors, and other things that actually created their slavery and their misery? Because in ordinary circumstances, no sane person would do this. So that's where we are now in America. That's where we are now. The good news is, and these are approximate figures, but I remember when I first started out in my ministry, which is the researching phase, I, I actually classify the beginning of my research phase as before third grade, because I was reading and looking for answers, you know, as a very, very young child. By the time I got third grade to third grade, I was seeking, reading books, looking for answers to, to life's most important questions. And I, I approached it with a vengeance. We didn't have internets, we didn't have cable, you know, all that stuff. We didn't have all this electronic stuff and websites and all that stuff. We had none of it. All we had was paper and, and books. And if you wanted to do your research, I would have to walk, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes to the local library. If the local library didn't have a book I wanted, I'd have to have the local library order a book from another library. So you had to be patient, but, and that's all there was. And we did have a very primitive form of a copying machine when I was a kid. It was called uh, uh, Microfish, I believe. Yeah, Microfish. And, and what that did is you would take your printed paper with the letters on it, you'd push it against a glass screen, you'd press the button, but instead of it photographing it, like in a, a cell phone or whatever, it, it captured very clearly all the words on the page of a book, except it showed up almost like an x-ray machine, like, like a foggy gray and white lettering, but very clear to read, against a blue background. And it wasn't radioactive, and it wasn't radiation, and it wasn't some poisonous chemical. I don't know what chemical it was made of, but it was like the first and primitive form of a copying machine. And so it was very hard. Basically, you had to go down there with a notebook and write everything down. I would go to the library, you know, probably like four times a month. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, I read... And this is not exaggerating, even even remotely. I read a minimum of at least around, let's just say, around 100 books a month on a diversity of sub subjects because I was trying to find answers. Psychology, science, nuclear physics, war, psychology, art, culture, uh, religion. But I didn't read too many Christian things, but a lot of New Age things, and Buddhism, yoga, marketing, uh, rocket science. I mean, you name it, all these obscure fields. I studied as I was looking for answers. And, and so that's the price you had to pay back then. And I don't regret it. I think I probably learned an infinite amount more than I would have learned had I had all the social media, 
the cell phone, the laptop, you know, and all the, the digital electronic stuff. I think I learned infinitely more. So I read all that study and I studied that stuff. And so at that time in my life, I'm talking about a young kid, I wanted to be a young, young kid, so maybe an oceanographer, maybe a rocket scientist, maybe. And what's interesting, I can't give away something about rocket scientists, but there's something very, <laughs> there's something very strange. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. So the thing was that uh, I studied all these books looking for answers and books on psychology and spirituality as well. Because my parents always told me, if you want to know the answer to something, get off your butt, uh, look it up in an encyclopedia or a book, or go to the library. We don't have the book. And so I was taught the, the principle, the discipline of looking stuff up, look, reading books, looking for answers, and thinking outside of the box. And when your mind is programmed in a positive way like that, it makes you essentially immune to being easily brainwashed or subjected to mind control because you've been programmed with a positive inner belief system that uh, you are to think for yourself. And if you question something, then, then look it up, study it, do your homework. And that was, a, even though my parents were atheists, that was a, a blessed gift of attitude that they gave. Okay, you're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. In a moment, I want to come back and I want to talk about, let's call them future shock trends that are coming upon America and the world very, very quickly. It's inevitable. Visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. We'll be back in just a moment. Wherever you are in America or across the world, you're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. Okay, so we talked about the acceleration of highly negative trends, future shock trends that have taken place in the last 50 years or 100 years. I mean, America on every level is radically different. Now, for those of you that have been born in, in recent times, so much of what, what passes for as normal or the new normal is actually thoughts, ideas, beliefs, behaviors, social trends that are so shocking, that are so upside down, that they're so out there on every level that for those of us that have been around a while, in other words, we're old enough to remember what the old normal was like, it is very difficult for us to look at this new normal without going through some kind of mental gymnastics because it is disorienting. And compared to the, the, the norm of human history, you know, when you go back through human history and you look at the ancient Canaanites and the Egyptians and, and Great Britain, and the Indians, the American Indians, and all kinds of cultures and, and stuff like that, there are significant variations in those cultures. But there has not been, up until recently, a, a total an annihilation of pre-existing values and culture, cultural beliefs and, and what is called sacred and non-sacred, etc. Okay, so let's just look at some of these in bullet point form. I was uh, half joking with my son. This was a number of years ago. And my son was telling me something. I forgot what it was. But the point is, 
my son was 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 trying to relate to me as if I mean he wasn't doing it on purpose he wasn't aware of it but he was trying to relate to me as if I I grew up in the same time period that he did and 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 while he's making this case the thought occurs to me that in, in actuality what he's what he's trying to communicate to me is very difficult for me to understand because it's so alien to to the the world that that I knew as the world. I mean, it's so it's radically changed, and many of you know what I'm talking about. I mean, there are so many things that we see on a regular basis that are so out there in comparison to to to, to the time that that we grew up in. Okay, so what are some of these? indicators of major transformation. <clears throat> so one would be technology. I, I remarked to my son in that same conversation, hey, blank, that's his name, uh, give me a break. Remember, I grew up in, in a time before we even had microwaves. And, and I said that as I kind of like discovered it at the same time. So I told him I grew up in a time when, when microwaves weren't around. And, and, and the thought registered to me, and probably you've thought about it occasionally. I mean, I could have said cell phone or anything. But for crying out loud, a microwave has been around as far as I can remember. I mean, a microwave has been around seemingly forever. And yet, I remember how the microwave revolutionized, that technology revolutionized the life, the lifestyles, of the middle class and the working class. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you that were born closer to this time, uh, you're going to have to stretch your imaginations a pinch to comprehend what it's like to be us. And I, I didn't mean that with a negative connotation. Okay, so the microwave had not yet been invented. So the microwave is invented. It, it sells like crazy. The price point is, is, is right for the times. And now, for the first time, basically, in human history, because back then, women were still the weight of cooking the dinner and the breakfast and stuff. Even if a woman had a job, the weight of that was still placed by society upon the woman. Later on, it loosened up, and the kids would cook their own food in the microwave. The husband would cook in a microwave. But back then... Even though it was a microwave, or, or or the equivalent term, if you traveled back in time, the equivalent term of microwave, when, when you refer to a meal that you you're eating for dinner, that was cooked in a microwave oven, you would get out. Maybe you've seen it. It's a very cheap looking tray, which is called, and you place the frozen dinner on it from the freezer, and that's the tea, the dinner is called the TV dinner. The TV dinner. Think of marketing the genius of marketing and advertising. So the TV dinner. Now, the TV dinner is a huge success along with the microwave. Why? Because it frees women seemingly from the slavery and the extra work of, of having to cook, prepare, think about a meal, shop for stuff to eat. A, a, a huge responsibility and potentially a headache for the woman is the microwave solves those problems. You buy the microwave dinners in advance. They're, they're pre-made, pre-packaged. Nobody was looking at, you know, the, the, the tons of chemicals, some of them toxic, that are part of the microwave TV dinner recipe. 
uh, microwave TV dinners would be stuff like mashed potatoes and gravy and some kind of steak back then. It could be ham. It could be uh, any number of steak-like meats. Okay, or it would be his favorite if you were a kid. Uh, noodles and cheese. I forgot what that's called. Macaroni, macaroni, macaroni and cheese. Simple, but, but, but it's still a big deal for microwave. So I remember going to a friend's house, and my friends got this stuff before we did. We were not the first people on the block to always get the, the new technology, like TVs and stuff. So, because at first my parents, humanists, were resistant to it. I don't know what their reason was, but they had some resistance to it. I think what they actually told me as a kid, they were secular humanists. I had Christian friends. But my secular humanist parents, who, who did not believe in God, said to me, we don't like the idea of a microwave TV dinner ball because we don't like the idea of, of having our family gather around a television set or, or having our family sit around a television set uh, while their dinners are being cooked in the microwave oven. And then instead of talking with one another at the dinner table, it's just, it's just all of us in the family sitting in a semicircle around the TV. We're not talking to each other. We're just listening or visiting in on a TV family or a TV sitcom. And so we're like silent and, and, and our only relationship. This is the way my parents talked, and this was at a young age. So they were into high-level thinking, okay, as humans. So they just didn't, they were not sheep by nature, and they imparted that in me. Think for yourself. But you see, I was all programmed by my friends in the TV commercials. So I was really not secretly thinking like my parents wanted me to. I, I wanted to veg out, watch TV, eat a microwave dinner, you know, the whole thing. And it's, oh, so my friends had microwave TV dinner trays. They, they were these cheap metallic trays that, that like, like they opened up kind of like a seat-sized folding table. But what, 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 what made them snappy, for lack of better words, <laughs> what made them snappy was that on the TV dinner, the, the very surface table, you'd have the seat area connected to the table area, the table and the seat had this, this great full-color, you know, picture of your favorite cartoon show or, or Superman or uh, stuff for girls, so your heroes, your heroines, and stuff like that. So you're sitting, the, the ultimate high, not the ultimate high, but it was pretty close to the ultimate high back then, was that you would go to your friend's house who were really proud of what they had, and they wanted to show off this stuff, so I, I, was, I couldn't wait. So I go to my friend's house, him and his brother are sitting there in their TV dinner chairs eating, and then I get served, and we're all eating the same TV dinner, or pretty much the same, just coming out of the microwave, sitting in our TV dinner chairs, and putting our dinners on our TV dinner uh, tables, which, which, which have lifelike color or cartoon pictures of the TV shows we love. So we're totally immersed or baptized in the spirit of television. I mean that facetiously. Now, here's, here's the flashback, and here's what's interesting. So as time goes by, um, my parents did, didn't warm up TV because they, they thought it was an idiot box that, that produced idiots, and they're right. But they, uh, I, think they, I guess they got used to it or whatever. But, oh, no, they were having problems in their own marriage. 
So, so I don't think that they, they had a, a key area of focus at that particular time in their lives to TV dinners. But initially, using merely their critical thinking, they were opposed to this entire new cultural wave of TV dinners, the family around the TV, uh, watching TV, and the whole commercialization of everything. Now, what's interesting about that is that there should have been, additionally, millions of Christians or aware or conservative people who were protesting and writing books and speaking out against this, because as subtle and subdued as it, it, it appears, it is a very evil thing. And it is a very, what, what we were experiencing collectively in America at that time, with the advent of TV dinners and TVs and the family sitting around the television set instead of talking and all the rest of that stuff, what, what was being generated was an artificially godless environment that contained a spiritual vacuum um, created by uh, people not talking to one another, which means you're not, you can't love one another, as the Bible says, if you're not talking to one another. It's a relationship with God. So you now have, have, you have killed the relationship between the parents and the children, and you've killed the relationship between God and his children by muzzling all human communication and putting the television in the center of your life. Now, that may seem like nothing, but it's more than the symbolism of television in the center of your life. It literally, it literally manifested into the technology of television being front and center in the lives of people. And what is another, what is another way of saying that? You have allowed God to be displaced by television, the God of television. I don't mean literally the God of television, but the God of television. And that's spooky, and that's what happened. And that, along with music, and the Beatles, and film, and, and the news media, etc., and, and books at that time, and the educational system, all of that became, if you want to call it, if you want to say it like it really should be said, and not mute it because you want to be politically correct and accepted by all your friends who are zoned out in zombie land. The, the critical thing here to understand is that all of those things were used to wage an all-out, everything we've just talked about, many of the things that we talk about in the Paul McGuire report, I will openly and publicly, I don't give a you-know-what what anybody thinks, Christian, non-Christian, whether they're the latest and greatest, you know, Christian leader or intellectual or whatever, good for them. I'm not, that's not what my goal is. My goal is to tell the truth and communicate the truth. That's where real ministry comes from. And, and so my goal is to communicate the truth and speak the truth. And so by underscoring and focusing in on these life-changing, nation-changing events, when, when people absorb, absorb that and they get an epiphany of what that really means, then, literally, and only then, can they be set free spiritually and psychologically and in every other area of life. And so there should have been an intelligent uproar over the, the, the viral spread of a psychological disease called television. Now, I remember when I would go to out-of-the-way places, when, 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 when God first began sending Christians to me, that's when it really accelerated. I began to hear this expression among Christians in churches, 
churches I'd be ministering to or churches I'd be part of the ministry team of. And I would constantly hear this expression from, you know, very straight-laced, fundamentalist-looking Christians. And they would always say, television is of the devil. And whenever they said, which they said often, that television is of the devil, it would drive me absolutely crazy. It would do me, I mean, I would do everything I could to restrain myself and, and rant and rave at them about how dumb they were and stupid they were for, for trivializing the discussion and, and saying something like, television is of the devil. I mean, I really thought, in my total prejudice, I thought they were like completely out of their minds whenever they said television is of the devil. I maintained that belief of hostility towards them and their statement for saying that for many decades. So for many decades, I didn't hear it as much as time went on, but for many decades, I endured people, which became less and less as time went on, I endured people saying what I thought was a stupid remark, television of the devil. Now, decades after I stopped hearing people say television is of the devil, and these weird Christians stopped saying television is of the devil. Now, now, time has gone by even further, and I have seriously reflected on this, and I would have to agree with the people I used to mock. And I would have to say that in the full extent of intellectual honesty, it would be intellectually honest and a fair assessment to say television is of the devil. Because for all practical purposes, television is of the devil. Now, I would add a modifier to that statement for the sake of accurate and effective communication. Because I think if you uh, fire off a blast by saying television is of the devil, that people will behave like I did. They will perceive you falsely and classify you as a religious nut, a crazy person, a lunatic, because they already are against you before you start talking. So I think when you, you open up with a volley like television is of the devil, it's too, it's too intense. And so I would seriously suggest that, that, you, that you say something to the effect of television is of the devil <clears throat> with the same punch, but you qualify it and modify it enough that you're also communicating that you're smart, you're sharp, you're perceptive, and you're not saying this because you're a hillbilly from somewhere. You're saying this because you really believe that television has been one of the most destructive factors in our society. And then I would agree with you, television is of the devil. So, we watch the world change. We watch behavior change. We see the signs of the times just blasting before us. And we see that from an external point of view, the institutions or entities or social organizations which appear to be leading the war to destroy America, to destroy America as a Judeo-Christian nation, to destroy the family unit, to destroy capitalism. In fact, I have their entire list in my book, A Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1 and 2. I have their entire list of what they intend to destroy. I have documentation for that in my book, A Prophecy of the Future of America. I have all the bullet points. And so, see, see, using words against people who are insecure about their belief system is an effective strategic mechanism for winning the cultural war. So you've got to outsmart 
those people who are spreading deception. And the way you outsmart them is you communicate your message clearly, try to have some snap to it so it so it lands home, and simultaneously, because inevitably what you're saying is going to appear to be somewhat odd to them or whatever, because they're so locked into their uh, illusion, simultaneously, and you have to work on it, develop a one-liner or whatever, which frames you or labels you or creates a clear perception of you instantaneously that you and the viewpoint you're espousing you and the viewpoint that you're espousing are very intelligent, very rational, very logical, very educated, very philosophical type of people. And so that in a nanosecond, they already know before you continue on, you have, you have given them an, an intellectual knockout punch front and center in their cranium. And I'm not advocating violence. I'm speaking metaphorically. So you've got to deliver that haymaker quick. Bam! Law-abiding, peaceful way. Because you can't... This BS... Oh, I would love to say the whole word, but I don't think so many people. This, these lies of demonizing Christians and demonizing the biblical point of view are, are outrageous. And the fact that our nation right now is being stolen by us right in front of our faces. In fact, it's so egregious. And I publish the names in my book, Power From On High. I list the names of all the globalist elite corporations, the globalist elite leaders that are secretly controlling the world. I list their names, an organizational flowchart I have in my book, Power From On High. And I tell you the families, the, the trillions of money they have, and exactly what their game plan is in the Great Reset. I reveal it all easily, simply, but I give you data in power from on high. And I, I present to you what I believe is an airtight case for this. It's very hard for people to break through their programmed mental barriers. The greatest challenge we have is that we are fighting an invisible war, and so many people who are, in, are participating in this invisible conflict, they themselves are unaware of the fact that they're in a conflict, they're in an invisible war, a spiritual war, and as such, they find themselves insecure in, in the practicalities of how to wage war in that invisible realm. So you've got to tap into your God-given intelligence. You've got to connect to the Lord Jesus in prayer, and he'll answer your prayer. And then when you look at the battlefield and you see your friends and, and parents and loved ones and siblings and people you know, and as time goes by, you see many of them die without any commitment to Christ or in going to heaven. As time goes by, you see tragedies begin to unfold. Uh, with people that don't know God and are lost. And as time goes on, there's an accumulation of pain in your inner man or woman regarding the broken heart that you truly have, because you truly have a broken heart uh, that has been produced by experiencing the pain of knowing and feeling people's sorrow and brokenheartedness and tears and anguish and rejection and betrayal and disappointment and woundedness. And I just touched on a few things. Every one of those things were massive 
entrances into the interior of men and women's souls in America. They are dying in all kinds of pain, physical, biological, and psychological. Yes, we know they put on a good show. They put on a good show when you meet them here and you meet them there. But I know and you know that God made you far smarter than that. You know that God has given you the mind of Christ, and you have the ability, you have the ability to see into their hearts, to see into their lives, even without them speaking a word. You have the ability to hear and to feel and to experience the incredibly tragic pain, the sorrow, the suffering, the, the, the aching emptiness, the, the anxiety and depression the misery, the, the aloneness, the secret, deep secret hidden from anybody and everybody, those deep secret thoughts about suicide and so much other stuff that they hide because they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. But you can see it. God has given you, and, and this isn't an accident that I'm talking about this. This, the Holy Spirit has stepped into our conversation and has redirected it with precision accuracy. And as God has redirected our conversation with precision accuracy, we are pinpoint, we have landed, the, the indicator arrow is touching precisely the area of the greatest, greatest woundedness and pain and suffering that, that people that you and I know and interact with, they carry that pain with them on a daily basis. And it's an incredible and almost inhuman amount of suffering. But you know that God has given you a supernatural ability to see through the walls in their personality. God has given you the ability to feel the pain, to experience their pain. To, you, you're, you, God has given you the supernatural gift of identifying with their suffering and, in a sense, entering their spiritual and emotional world. So he didn't do that so you could gossip, and he didn't do that so you could, you know— entertain yourself with spiritual games, or, or he didn't do that so that you could brag to everybody about what a great man or woman of God you are. That's not why he gave you all that stuff. So, you can see what other people can't see, and there's a reason for that, because you're supposed to be God's agent, God's hand, God's, God works through you, God works through me. And his healing power will flow out of you and into that person when you meet them or talk to them or whatever. God's power will flow out of you into them. Now, right now, multiply that pain and suffering by, I don't know, a million-fold, at least in America. Multiply the number of broken hearts and secret tra tragedies and everything else, suicide and everything else. Multiply how many people that potentially represents, and then quantify the unbelievable level of agonizing and despair that, that's resounding through their emotional system. So what do you come up with? You come up with this simple fact. It is obvious that God has given you the gift of seeing and experiencing their pain at the level that you can. The reason for that is God wants you to see what he sees 24-7. God wants you to see what he sees. and then. As you see it and experience the pain and suffering and the, the, the emptiness, which only salvation and Christ can fix, as you see into that world, God has given you next the supernatural ability to, to pour 
the healing power of Jesus to pour the rivers of living water, to open your heart and to communicate as best you can, to communicate in such a way that you both intellectually and biblically answer their answers and questions and you minister them, but but phrase your words in such a way that you impart the presence of the Lord upon them and their families, so that when they talk to you, their countenance changes, the, the musculature of their faces and body tension changes. You'll get little clues, like, like you'll be talking to them, and, and one of the feedback measures that you're talking is being anointed by the Holy Spirit and the presence of God will be, you will hear the person you're talking to when they, when they get next to the proximity of the presence of the Lord. They'll take like a deep exhale and a deep inhale. Like they'll, they'll, they'll like unconsciously sigh and breathe in and breathe out. And what, what you can feel they're doing is they're giving up. They're letting go of all that tension. And, they're, it's, and the Spirit of God is going into their inner man or woman and letting go of the tension. And they're receiving in a childlike way the healing presence of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the ministry power of the Holy Spirit is anointing them. So they're sighing in relief. They're sighing in, in a restful breath of exhaling, inhale. Just because you made yourself available after God showed you, you made yourself available, you prayed. You didn't hardcore manipulate it. You waited on the Lord, and the Lord opened the door, and you began to minister to him that open door. Now, you multiply that by a million people and far more who are in deep agony and suffering. The Lord shows you where they're at. And so you now have a burden and, and revelation not only regarding one person, you have a supernatural burden and revelation regarding an excess of millions of people in America, some whose faces you will see and some that you will not see. I had a, this, 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 like this, it rarely happens to me. I had a dream that was so supernatural and so bizarre, because it really, it's a dream that has almost nothing to do with my own life, and the abstractions and symbols in the dreams, they came from another dimension, because it's not stuff I ever think about. Okay, so I'm dreaming, and in the dream, I'm asleep. And in the dream, I'm asleep in a room that is filled with it's it's like a bedroom sized room that's filled, but I don't recall there being furniture or anything. But 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 there's a, a white and golden yellow tone to all the walls and paint and everything in the room has like a golden yellow white color. Which, as I'm speaking to you now, I I, I realize that the, the distinct called the distinct physical colors of the room symbolized that the room was filled and painted over with the glory of God. The Lord just revealed that to me. So I'm in this room sleeping, and that yellow, white, golden color is really symbolic of the, of the glory of God filling that room while I'm sleeping. And I, I can see, even though my eyes are closed and I'm sleeping in the room, I can see somebody walk in the room behind me, and they're coming over to talk with some person who's helping me or partnering with me or something in the room, okay? And the, and, and the only thing that when I first see this guy who walks in behind me, the first thing I notice is that he is like so impeccably hip 
and put together in in the style of his clothing, his running shoes, and everything. I mean, his his physical presentation. He has got his act together. He looks like a rock star. You know, it's hip but very classy. I mean, it's just larger than life, and I can see him even though I'm asleep. My eyes are closed, and then. He starts to talk to this guy who's helping me, and uh, I'm asleep, I guess, but 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 I'm also awake in the dream. I guess I'm asleep in the dream and awake in the dream because I can hear. I'm listening into their conversation, and I'm listening to what they're talking to. And then finally, I'm still in this room that's dazzling in, in its golden, white, yellow color, the glory of God. And the guy who came into the room and is talking, he is now saying, to the person who's helping me, he tells people who he really is. And, and I, I may have asked him, or my friend may have asked him, you sound like you're so-and-so, you look like you're so-and-so. Well, anyway, however he announced who he was, it turns out that this particular individual who had come into this room, and God knows where they came from, because it was apparent that he had traveled across a continent to get to where we were, he was a famous rock star in the 70s or late 60s or something. Oh, his name back then, and still is, I think, Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens. And he has recorded several Grammy Award-winning albums and songs. I don't know if he's still alive. I have no reason to assume he's dead. But in the dream, he says who he is. He's Cat Stevens, and my mind is blown because I can't figure out, somehow Cat Stevens knows that this room he's in has Christians in it. I don't know how he knew that, but but he knew that. And he begins to talk, and, and his hair is long, and it's like manicured for a rock star. I mean, the, the guy looks like he's ready to do a national TV appearance. And he, 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 ident- he identifies the fact that he's Cat Stevens, talks a little about his journey where he converts to Islam, which is Cat Stevens did convert to Islam. But then as he's talking to my friend and he's talking to me, he says, I'm going to reveal a secret to you that I have never told anybody about in my entire life, because it's against my religion and it's against my beliefs. So he says to both of us, Cat Stevens says, "Um, I cannot take the pain of life any longer, Cat Stevens says. And then he says, now remember, this is just a dream. It's just a dream. Then Cat Stevens says, oh, I can't take living any longer. It's unbearable. I hide it from everybody, but the pain is unbearable. I cannot go, can't, I can't continue on. And he said, but I'm not, and then he said, don't worry. I'm not going to kill myself like most people kill myself. I'm not going to commit suicide like most people commit my suicide. suicide. I'm, I'm not going to do any violence uh, to my body or, or commit suicide in some horrific way. He said, I refuse to do that. He said, so he named the name of his own doctor, and then he said, I'm going to commit suicide slowly and over time and incrementally. And then he explains and shows his bottle of medication or whatever. He says that that uh, the way I'm going to commit suicide is I'm going to take this particular uh, medicine or drug, which you take a slow, uh, a very small amount of it, on a, on a daily basis, one a day, and then you continue it on for months. And I don't know what months meant. It could have meant six months, okay? 
And he said, slowly, this will painlessly kill you. And no one will ever think you committed suicide. It is a special medication. It's painless. And it, it will not be violent or disruptive to anybody's life. But it will, I guess he's repeating what the secular doctor said to him, but it will, it will take you out of this world. And I'm horrified by what Cat Stevens is saying in the dream. And this is what's going on in my mind. Now, remember, as Cass Stevens is explaining all this, and again, this is just a dream, as Cass Stevens is explaining all of this, he, he uh, talks about how he thought about it a great deal and researched it. But the, the, thought, the thought became obvious to me as I, I, I looked at him. I could see him again. My eyes are closed. I'm asleep inside of my, inside of my sleep. So in, so in actuality, everything that's going on is like a very life-like dream, but it's a dream. And I'm in a, in a, in a room which is gold and white, a gold and gold, and uh, paint color. And, and, and that represents that I'm in a room with the glory of God turned on, you know, the glory of God turned up full blast, but without any heat. And the room is just this dazzling, brilliant, golden yellow and golden white and uh as i'm there asleep but awake at the same time inside a dream i'm very much aware of the, the the glory of god in the room and and how these colors represented the true spirituality of jesus christ and this guy Cat stevens has somehow come across the world found our location i think he saw something on the internet or something and and then just shows up and is talking to the guy that is working with me, and, and I'm not hiding from the conversation, but I, I didn't want to disrupt from the flow of him opening up his heart and really sharing his pain. I didn't want to interrupt it by all of a sudden waking up and you know his, his heart is tender and ripe. So in any case, I think it was soon after I was in a sleep to semi sleep state, and then kind of like a barely sleep state to an awake state. And and while I'm slowly awakening and going through those stages, I I recognize that the the image of the brilliantly bright golden white yellow room, which represents the, the glory of God, is so intense that, that is it, it is radiating all around me, even with my eyes sh- shut, it is radiating all around me, which signifies this is what it signified. See, this is how you can interpret a prophetic dream. It's specific to you. You know, it's not one size fits all. So you buy a book and they tell you, every time you see a bird, a bird means this in a prophetic dream. That's a bunch of you know what. God speaks to you personally and individually. It may represent for some people, a bird may represent something, but God talks to you individually. And therefore, a bird may represent something, but it may represent something entirely different than the pat formula, one size fits all answer. Okay, are you with me? All right. So the dream is prophetic in the sense, in this sense, there are, there, there are multiple levels or tiers to the meaning of the dream. I'm only going to share some of them with you. And, and then I'll do it very briefly. It, within the context of the dream, the bright and golden light and, and colors represented, as we said, the glory of God. So this was God's way of telling me that Paul and Paul 
the, the, the colors of the room and the glory of God that filled the room represents your ministry, Paul McGuire Ministries, represents Paul McGuire, which is Paul McGuire Ministries, and represents Paradise Mountain Church, which is uh, a, a room where people come to from all over the United States, and that room is filled with the glory of God. So, so the, the important point was the Lord said, all of you, all of my people, we are all, he wasn't speaking of himself, we are all, in a sense, empty. We're like the, that, that empty room. But, but when the empty room is filled and painted with the yellow and the white representing the glory of God, and the room is filled with the glory of God, whenever a room is filled with the glory of God, whenever a person is filled or allows me to fill them with the glory of God, whenever the glory of God moves into a conversation or the glory of God causes somebody to go from one continent to another, whenever the glory of God supernaturally changes events in reality, that is just one of the things that the glory of God can do when you allow it to be released. And that is why the glory of God is also referred to as power from on high. So I'm thinking about this, and, and the Lord is saying to me, Paul, I, I am reminding you through this dream, Paul. I'm paraphrasing what God said to me. I am reminding you through this dream, Paul, that you are to be aware of the fact that because I have called you supernaturally into ministry, and all Christians are called supernaturally into ministry, it may be various forms, but everybody is called to uh, be part of ministry. Okay? So God is reminding me, because I have called you to be uh, in ministry, and because you are filled with the glory of God, Whenever a person or, or a church or whatever is dedicated to God, dedicated to me, I will fill it and sanctify it with my glory, says the Lord. So the Lord said, I gave you this, this dream to remind you of certain realities. The Lord said, I, I want to refresh you and reschool you regarding certain realities in your life that are important for you to reintegrate with. And then the Lord said, so I need you to pay attention and grasp what I'm trying to tell you, the Lord said. And so what the Lord was trying to tell, you, tell me, and I'm paraphrasing, was that that room filled with the glory of God, me as an individual person, or me as Paul McGuire of Paul McGuire Ministries, filled with the glory of God, uh, Paradise Mountain Church and our ministry and our church ministry and, and the buildings, which are the hotels we rent, are filled with the glory of God. Whenever we're involved in something, occupying or praying or whatever, that that area is is permeated by the glory of God. Now, so the glory of God fills empty spaces and whatever. And so I'm, I'm now beginning to go into a wake-up state, and I'm thinking about this, and the Lord's saying, what I'm trying to, to remind you of, what I want you to remember from this dream, is that people are not who they appear to be on the uh, surface. Again, I'll say what the Lord said to me. The Lord said to me, people are not who they appear to be on the level of their surface. In other words, people can put on all these exterior acts or act like they have it all together or act like they're totally happy or act like they don't have a care in the world. But all of that is, is, is fakery. All of that is an illusion. All of that is projection. 
the truth of the matter is, and so in the dream, Cat Stevens, Cat Stevens represented a guy who apparently had it all. I mean, he had everything, okay, in the dream. He had everything, at least on, on certain levels. And then the Lord said, I brought Cat Stevens to you in your dream. Because the Lord knows I'm not a big Cat Stevens fan. I never have been. Uh, the Lord said, I brought to you Cat Stevens in your dream to give you a message. The message, the Lord said, is that you are to start looking at people from a deeper level. And then the Lord said, many, many things have happened prophetically in the last four years, five years, 10 years, and 20 years in America and the world. The Lord continued to say to me, people are broken and shattered and hurting on deep, deep levels, but they're hiding, they're hiding their real feelings by wearing masks and pretending everything's just okay. The Lord said, I gave you this dream to remind you to look through the facade and really learn through the power of the Holy Spirit how to see what they feel and look like in their inner man or woman, how to hear what they hear, how to experience whatever pain or emotions or joy they're feeling. The Lord says, I want to equip you with the power of my Spirit to discern the spirits and to discern what's really happening in their lives, good or bad. And then the Lord says, I want you to be paying attention to that. I want you to be tuned into that. And the Lord said, and then when, through the power of my Holy Spirit, I begin to increase and to bring even more people into your life or in, in contact to your ministry or in proximity with you, as I increase that flow of people who are in desperate need of ministry into your life, the Lord says, I want you to be paying attention because I'm going to reveal to you what's really happening in their life, like what Pat Stevens did in the dream. And then the Lord said, I want you to be prepared to use the power of my Holy Spirit to set them free, to minister to them, to lead them to salvation in Jesus Christ, to break bondages off their life, and basically be a conduit of my power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and my love. Call upon me to send my love and healing into their lives. And as you do that, and as you're faithful to do that, says the Lord, I will bless many people around the world, and I will bless you and your family. And the Lord says, I will bless every man and woman who chooses to partner with you. I will bless them as surely as I will bless you, your family, and people that you're ministering to. I will also bless every man or woman who chooses to partner with you. Because by partnering in with you, they are doing the will of God, which I called you to do. So, so this is good. The Lord's schooling me, and then the Lord says that he's going to reveal this to me. And then the Lord said, I want you to be increasingly aware not to be fooled by people's acts and their presentations like Pat Stevens. But then the Lord said, the reality is because of the calamities of our time, because of the disruption, the chaos, the vax, the, the hurt, the social isolation, the fear, the fear of world wars, the Lord said, there are many plagues and plights coming upon the earth. And the Lord said, my people are hurting and wounded. Those people that don't, do not know me are hurting and wounded. The Lord said, despite the fact that they're faking it, there are countless millions of people in America and around the world that are in agonizing emotional and spiritual pain. I need you to tune into it when I bring it your way, says the Lord. And then, in obedience to me, says the Lord, by faith, I want you to step out on, on faith always when I bring these people to you, 
step out on faith always, and then by calling upon my miraculous power in prayer, I want you to set them free, heal them, minister to their lives in the name of Jesus. So, so, so this whole thing was about the Lord giving me a firm reminder, a strong exhort, like a football coach would, would, would act when confronting his team if they were like slouching or whatever. Not, not that I was slouching, but, I, but the Lord rebukes those that he cares about. And again, I wasn't disobeying the Lord. I wasn't slouching. The Lord is saying, step up your game. Step up your game. And so that's what I want to share with you. We, we analyze everything that's happening. There are a multitude of strategies. There are ways that are effective and ways that, that will detonate in a bad way right in front of your face. But I'm telling you this out of my inner man. I'm telling you this from the hidden chambers of my inner man. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, greater is he that, that, that is in me than he that is in the world. The Spirit of God, which is alive and well in me. The Spirit of God, which is rising up inside of me. The Spirit of God, which is bestowing anointing on me right now and bestowing anointing on you right now. That Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is touching you right now. And he's giving you, like he gave me, directions, instructions, guidance, opportunities for blessing, promotion, mission, and all kinds of things the Lord is giving you. And he wants you to step out by faith. And, and the reason I believe the Lord wants me to share what I shared is that we all make the mistake in buying into the mythology of somebody's exterior. Just because people are faking it and act like they have it all together doesn't mean that they aren't in suicidal and agonizing pain, as illustrated by the symbolism of Cat Stevens in my life and in my dream. So the Lord wants us to see through that, and the Lord is saying, that pain, that suffering, that chaos that is happening has created an amazing opportunity for you and my people to win souls to Jesus Christ, to deliver, to heal. To set the captives free. There has never, ever been a better time in human history for the, men, for, for the hearts of men and women to be wide open so that my people can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, we do everything, and I've learned a secret. To the degree that we're willing to step out by faith and obey God, it is to that degree that God will consequently reward us and multiply back to us all that we endeavor to do in Christ Jesus. That is an irreversible law of God and law of the universe, the law of reciprocity. If you're going to clench on to everything, including your gifting, if you're going to allow yourself to be paralyzed with fear, if you're going to be incredibly creative about making excuses for doing nothing, the result will be that you have sown a bad crop of spiritual seed, and you're not going to see the, the harvest. And it's God saying to you right now that he loves you, and God is saying to you that he wants you to fully experience the harvest that he has for you. But, but the Lord is saying you, you can't not plant seed and then expect the harvest. The Lord is saying to me and you, you've got to plant seed, and then you cultivate the harvest. The planting of seed is the preaching of the gospel. It's ministry. It's loving people. It's praying for people. It's obeying the voice of the Lord. That plant seed. And after the planting of the seed, the harvest comes. 
All right, this is Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. And let us obey the Lord in all things. Let us believe God for the impossible. And as we believe biblically, so be it. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us.